Good evening, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. We are continuing our series entitled Christmas Apologetics, where we are looking at the evidence regarding Jesus as the Messiah or the Savior of the world and what Scripture teaches about him. Now, we said last week that this series is meant to be an encouragement to all believers as we look at the fact that our faith isn't really blind faith, because actually there's a great deal of evidence and proof behind the Christian faith. And we also hope that this series will be a great resource for those who are curious about the Christian faith, uh, that it would bring um, some answers to some of the questions and doubts that people may have. So I hope that um, for those Christians who are watching and are listening to this, uh, that you may share it with those who may don't uh, may not have um, uh, faith in Christ, uh, that it may help them take a step towards him. Now, Lastly, last week, we clarified that some of the elements of the Christmas story or things surrounding the uh, Christmas holiday, um, we tried to clarify some of that and, and to um, bring some um, uh, some more accuracy to some of those things. Now, uh, these weren't necessarily big faith altering things that we talked about last week, but they uh, they help us be more clear and honest uh, about our Christian faith and about the Christmas holiday and uh, they help us to kind of segue into some more substantial uh, gospel conversations as we talk to those who maybe don't know a lot about the Christian faith or have some uh, some objections to it. We can use some of the things that we talked about last week to kind of lead into some more substantial uh, Christian conversations. Now, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the proofs of Jesus, uh, but we're not going to begin with the Christmas story uh, that we find in the Gospels. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to be, uh, we're not even going to be in the New Testament at all. We're going to be in some of the uh, Old Testament prophecies uh, that point to the Messiah. We believe as Christians that all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, all point to Jesus, and that hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus came on this earth, there were Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the fact uh, of Jesus and what his life would be like. Now, this is important because the Messianic prophecies of of the Old Testament offer powerful evidence that Jesus is, in fact, the foretold Messiah who would bring salvation to the world. After all, there are, depending on who you ask, anywhere from 48 to 351 Old Testament prophecies pointing to uh, Jesus being the Messiah. And many of these prophecies are hundreds or even thousands of years uh, written before Christ came about. So some skeptics are going to argue that Jesus uh, or his followers who came after him twisted these prophecies or the events of Jesus' life to fit these prophecies. Now, to be quite honest, while there could be some reasonable arguments for that, I don't believe they hold any water, but while there may be some arguments for that, um, we're going to be looking at some of the prophecies that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for Jesus or his followers to twist or fabricate or force into uh, uh, Jesus' life story to make him a fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And so um, I hope that as we look at at least seven of these, that this will give believers some evidence to, to help defend the faith, as well as uh, give some more evidence for uh, unbelievers and those who don't believe in Christ as Messiah, uh, a little bit more um, weight to the Christian faith in their eyes. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into some of these. As I said, we're going to look at seven 
of the Old Testament prophecies that would be very difficult or impossible for Jesus or his Messiah to um, to fulfill. So uh, the first one is uh, from Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 14. And this is the prophecy that uh, the Messiah, whoever he may be, uh, would be born of a virgin. And Isaiah 7, 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he uh, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this was a prophecy that Isaiah uh, gave to a, a king. I think it was King uh, Ahab, Ahab uh, back in the Old Testament, um, and it, it was to signify that Jesus would protect Israel from an invading army. But it's interesting that the sign that is given is that a virgin shall bear a son. Now, I know that there are some who point out that this word, this Hebrew word virgin, uh, could mean uh, a literal virgin, or it could be just, uh, uh, it could signify just a, a maid, someone who has not given birth yet, but uh, is going to conceive of her first child. Uh, and so one thing that we need to understand with these prophecies is oftentimes the prophecies meant something at the time where the prophet, in this case, Isaiah, first gave the prophecy, this was a prophecy that meant something to Isaiah, meant something to the king and to the people of Israel at that given time. Uh, and so it, it, it most likely was a a, uh, a maid or a young woman at that time who was going to give birth. And it was to signify that within nine months, within just a short time, God would provide deliverance for his people from this invading army. That is the, the near fulfillment of this prophecy. But it also, the language is... Um, has enough enough wiggle room in it uh, grammatically that it also points to a far-reaching prophecy that we see in the New Testament where there was literally a virgin who gave birth to a child uh, and name and his name was Emmanuel, God with us, that God came in flesh, that he was with his people. And so uh, it's really hard uh, to uh, fabricate this in the life of Jesus, or for his followers to later fabricate this in the life of Jesus, that a virgin would give birth to a child. And yet here in Isaiah 7, 14, uh, we see that is one of the prophecies of the Messiah. Also, another uh, proof, uh, Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah would be that there would be this messenger who would precede uh, precede the coming of the Messiah, this, um, this prophet, this spokesman who would prepare the way of the Messiah to come into Israel and to proclaim the kingdom of God has, has arrived. And so in Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read that the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And in Malachi 3, 1, it says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Here in multiple prophecies, we see that before the Messiah were, was to come, there would be this messenger who would precede him to prepare his way. Again, this is nothing that Jesus, uh, if he were a charlatan, if he were making this up, he couldn't uh, have prepared someone to go before him, before his birth before his ministry and to pray the prayer this way. This is something that God orchestrated and prophesied many years before Jesus was even conceived. 
And then a third prophecy that we see in the Old Testament is that he would be born in Bethlehem. Again, this is not something that anyone could concoct. You cannot determine where your parents give birth to you. But uh, God uh, prophesied uh, through his prophets uh, many years before Christ that the child would be born in Bethlehem. We see in Micah 5.2 that it says, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathath, uh, though you are little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings are from old, from everlasting. The really interesting thing about this prophecy is not only that it's prophesying uh, that it will, uh, the birth will happen in Bethlehem, but also it says that this is going to be a ruler in Israel. That This is going to be one who's uh, going forth or from old, from everlasting. Uh, it can't get any clearer than that, that uh, this is not just a person who will be born in Bethlehem, but this will be God himself born in Bethlehem because his, only God is from everlasting to everlasting. And so not only do we see that this one who is going to be born in Bethlehem, uh, this one who is going to be the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but that he will be from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, again, uh, one of these prophecies that cannot be fabricated or concocted in any other way. Uh, number four, the fourth prophecy that we're going to look at is that he will minister primarily in the region of Galilee. We read this in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is in distress, as it, uh, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephertili, uh, and afterward more heavily opposed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This is talking about there is going to be this light of God, this great revelation of God that is going to come. But he hones in specifically of where this great light will happen. He says it's going to happen beyond the Jordan in the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. Again, Galilee was a heavily populated Gentile area. And it says that this great light will shine upon them. Uh, and they will receive this great revelation. And so we see that the Messiah who's going to come, primarily the revelation that he is bringing will happen in Galilee. And that is exactly what we see in Jesus, that 80% of Jesus' ministry happened within the region of Galilee. That is where the light of God first shone. And then uh, uh, prophecy number five is, that he will die with the wicked, but he will be buried with the rich. Again, this is getting even more specific. And I don't know of anyone who can control when they die, how they die, and who they're buried with. But yet, this is what we read in Isaiah 53.9. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich uh, at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So, um, and we're going to be in Isaiah 53 again a little bit later, but it's just interesting to see here that his grave is with the wicked. And again, we see Jesus crucified between two thieves. But even though he died with the wicked, he will be buried with the rich. And we know that that happened with Jesus, with Joseph at Arimathea, very uh, uh, rich. Many people believe he was probably a Pharisee or Sadducee, and it was a borrowed tomb that Jesus' body was laid. 
And so this is nothing that Jesus uh, could have orchestrated or fabricated. This is nothing that his disciples uh, had any control over. But this was all in um, coordination with the prophecies that God had led his people hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever uh, stepped onto this earth. And then in Zechariah 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on, on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And so here we, we see that um, that God, through his prophet Zechariah, is saying that he is going to pour out on Israel this, this contrition, this, um, this brokenness, because they will look on me. God says they'll look on me whom they have pierced. Um, and so here again, God is just telling them explicitly that uh, he is going to take their wounds, that he will uh, be pierced. And this is so amazing that here's Zechariah hundreds of years before Christ, before Rome came to, uh, to um, dominate Israel. There is this prophecy of piercing this one from God, or maybe even God himself, however you, you look at uh, this prophecy. So again, just strong evidence uh, for uh, Christ. Um, and then we also see in Psalm uh, 22, uh, I'm just going to read all of Psalm 22 because it is a wonderful psalm. And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, if you have uh, read scripture I've been, and you know of um, the how the Gospels portray the crucifixion of Christ, many of the things that you find in Psalm 22 are just going to really stand out to you. Uh, and it's amazing that here David writing this uh, had such prophetic insight as to what would happen uh, to Christ. And so I'll just begin in verse 1 in Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and so far from my groaning? And again, many of you will recognize that this is uh, Jesus quotes directly uh, that first verse here when he's on the cross. It says, oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear and in the night season and am not silent. But you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and shake their head, saying, He trusted in God and let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly some of the things that were shouted at Christ on the cross that we see in the Gospels. Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while at my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. But not far, be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it melts within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue clings to my jaws. This is, again, one of the things that we see in Jesus that they, uh, when they struck him in the heart, that he was literally poured out like water, like this psalm. Uh, we know that he thirsted, and they gave him a drink. Again, talking about how his tongue clings to his jaws. 
Going on in verse 16, it says this, For dogs have surrounded me, their congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They count all my bones. Again, this is uh, alluding uh, to the crucifixion here, piercing the hands and the feet. They count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, which the Roman soldiers did of Jesus on the cross. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I praise your name. And then it continues to go on. But again, what powerful imagery and what prophetic insight uh, David had here of Jesus's uh, uh, crucifixion. A number of things mentioned here in this psalm of Jesus and his, uh, uh, about uh, being thirsty, about being pierced, hands and feet being pierced, about his heart. Uh, melting like wax, and we know that Jesus' heart, um, because of what happens physically on the crucifixion, that water builds up around the heart, so when they pierced him, water and blood came out. We know that they uh, took his clothes and they divided like garments. As far as we know, none of these things ever happened to David, but yet, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes this about the Messiah. And so again, just another wonderful proof of the prophecies of the Old Testament with uh, pinpoint accuracy pointing to Jesus. I'm going to draw your attention to another wonderful uh, passage of Scripture. It's a little bit lengthy, but again, you'll just see so many insights of prophecies about the Messiah and how it just points uh, clearly to Christ. And this comes from Isaiah 53. It's just 12 verses, but it's chock full of rich imagery that we see in the life of Jesus. Again, this is hundreds of years before Christ. Jesus nor his disciples uh, could have had any um, way of concocting any of these to uh, to read back into the text. These are things uh, that only point to divine inspiration of Scripture as well as the, uh, the, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. We see in Isaiah 53, verse 1 uh, begins this way. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness and we, uh, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was a stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit 
in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he was put to grief. When you make his soul an offering to sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his day, days, and the, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, it was numbered among the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, there's just so much in there. But again, nowhere in ancient Judaism was there, was there this idea that one person could bear the sins of another person. Every person had to answer for their own particular sins. But here Isaiah, through the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was prophesying that there would come a person who would be a sacrificial lamb, who would be be um, an intermediary that would take on the burdens, the sins, the transgressions, and the punishment of all the people. And it says that through his sacrificial death and through the knowledge of this particular person, there would be many who would be justified. Again, this prophesied about Jesus and how he would uh, die sacrificially so that others may be forgiven. And then uh, lastly, um, we see that he would be resurrected after death. So not only do we see that his birth and his life was prophesied in the Old Testament, not only do we see that crucifixion and pinpoint accuracy was prophesied in the Old Testament about the Messiah, but we also see that his resurrection after death is also prophesied. Again, we already read in Isaiah 53, but I'll just say it again. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he was and and he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. But notice this next part. He shall see his seed. Again, his children. We are uh, the children of God. So even after his death, uh, he, the Messiah, the sacrificial one who dies for us, will see his seed. And his uh, he shall prolong his day. So even after his death, his days will be prolonged. It's talking about this resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All this pointing to the fact, that, yes, he will die sacrificially, but his days will be prolonged. He will see those who come after him. And then in Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, it says this, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, that is in the a place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Here, again, just prophetically, uh, David is saying that um, your Holy One, your Anointed One, your Messiah will not see corruption. We, uh, he will not suffer decay. You will not leave his soul in the land of the dead. You will resurrect him again. So <clears throat> there are many, many more prophecies that we could point to uh, that testify that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. As I said, some uh, calculate there are over 300 different uh, prophecies pointing to the Messiah, and Jesus fulfills every single one. To help visualize just how um, how miraculous it is that any one person would ever even be able to fulfill just a few of these prophecies, uh, let alone all of them the way that uh, Jesus uh, did, uh, there is an illustration that people have, have, have given to kind of um, kind of help us visualize this. And so if you were to take just eight of the hundreds of prophecies that are spoken about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and you, you were to have someone um, 
fulfill just eight of them, it would be the equivalent of if you were to take some quarters and you were to fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep, the entire state of Texas two feet deep with quarters, and then you were to take just one of those quarters and mark it uh, with your initials and throw it out into the middle of the state and then shuffle all the quarters around, spread them all out, and then blindfold someone, send them out into that, um, that um, mass of quarters, and for them to just get one chance to pick up the quarter with your initials on it, that would be uh, the chances of someone being able to fulfill just eight of these prophecies. And the reason why that uh, um, that is is because many of the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament are outside anyone's controls. They are so specific and they are so um, uh, miraculous in their in in anyone's ability to fulfill them. It makes it nigh impossible. It has to be an act of God for anyone to fulfill just a few of them, let alone all of them. And so we see time and time again, the Old Testament points to Christ. It gives um, confirmation that Jesus truly is the one true Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so I hope that uh, by going through some of those Old Testament uh, prophecies as we did this evening, that it again bolsters your faith, gives you confidence that Jesus truly is uh, the Son of God. And if you have been, um, if you've had questions, if you've doubted the Christian faith, I hope that uh, by looking at some of what the Old Testament teaches, again, these were written hundreds and thousands of years before Christ. I hope this uh, gives you a little bit more pause that you would consider the Christian faith and and the the good news of Jesus Christ and and what it means uh, to you and your eternity. So with that said, we're going to continue uh, looking through the evidence of Jesus, the uh, apologetics of Christmas. I hope this series is a blessing to each and every one of you. Again, God wants to give you evidence, proof, uh, uh, a foundation for your faith. And so there is great evidence in scripture and in the world around us uh, for the claims of Christianity and for the claims of Christmas. So again, I hope this is a blessing to you. Until next week, take care and God bless.